This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. There are times this behavior seems almost pathological, uh, the, the pattern of falsehoods. He's always in the moment just sort of reacting um, and trying to get reactions. How, how loyal are you to the president? And that's how you're being judged. So if you have a more nuanced position, some will consider you, you know, a, an infidel or a traitor. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. The show about the man who may take a vacation from the White House, but never takes a vacation from Twitter, Donald Trump. I'm Seth Stevenson, a writer here at Slate and your host for today's show. Sometimes when I'm getting worried about encroaching authoritarianism, my friends will say, but Seth, Trump hasn't actually turned America into a totalitarian state yet. Okay, sure, I'll say, but it's not for lack of trying. Over and over, Trump has stated his desire to quash press freedoms, mess with voter rolls, and trample on the rule of law. America has so far, knock on wood, prevented him from realizing these clearly delineated goals. But what if he starts to succeed? Will we realize it in time? Or will we slowly slide into the gloom? Dark thoughts like these are what caused me to draw up my get scared list. This is a way to remind myself that if certain events come to pass, I should get scared. For instance, should Trump find some way to imprison Jeff Bezos? the owner of the Washington Post, which has uncovered all manner of Trump evil doing, well, that would be a good time to get scared. Maybe even start packing some bags. Should Kid Rock get elected as a Michigan senator, marking America's full descent into idiocracy? That would be another reason to get scared. A Senate full of Kid Rocks is not a Senate I want advising or consenting. One Kid Rock in office is one Kid Rock too many. Time to start worrying. Look at the plane tickets. I know I'm being a little dramatic, but at the risk of proffering a dangerously overheated historical analogy, the people who left Europe before the Holocaust were the people who let themselves get scared. We're nowhere near the get scared point yet, and with luck, I'll look back on my list as a quaint artifact of a bygone era. Or maybe I'll look back on it as my saving grace. Coming up on today's show, Jonathan O'Connell, he's a reporter at the Washington Post covering land use and development in Washington, D.C. And boy, is there a chunk of property there that we here at Trumpcast are interested in. It's the Trump International Hotel. More on that soon. But first, here are the tweets. Working in Bedminster, New Jersey, as long planned construction is being done at the White House. This is not a vacation. Meetings and calls. The failing New York Times, which has made every wrong prediction about me, 
including my big election win, apologized, is totally inept. Hard to believe that with the 24-7 fake news on CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, New York Times, and the Washington Post, the Trump base is getting stronger. How much longer will the failing New York Times, with its big losses and massive unfunded liability and non-existent sources, remain in business? Emails show that the Amazon, Washington Post, and the failing New York Times were reluctant to cover the Clinton-Lynch secret meeting in plain. I think Senator Blumenthal should take a nice long vacation in Vietnam where he lied about his son. So he can at least say he was there. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Our guest today is Jonathan O'Connell. He's a Washington Post reporter who covers land use and development in D.C., as well as the Trump and Kushner real estate businesses. Jonathan has a piece in the Post this week that's about the Trump International Hotel, which he writes has quickly become a kind of White House annex. This is nothing Washington has ever seen. For the first time in presidential history, a profit-making venture touts the name of a U.S. president in its gold signage, and every cup of coffee served, every fundraiser scheduled, every filet mignon ordered, feeds the revenue of the Trump family's private business. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So this sounds like a pretty involved reporting process where you're at the hotel every day uh, for a month. What kinds of obstacles did you face reporting this story and how did you overcome them? Yeah, I mean, I've been covering the building for quite a while since before uh, the Trumps turned it into this really fancy hotel. And when they first opened it, um, you know, they were in the heat of the election, but, you know, the people at his company were still you know, they were working on finishing the hotel there, trying to make sure the, the lights would work and the electricity was on. And it was it was sort of a more naive time in a lot of ways, I guess, because, um, you know, you could still kind of get the company to answer questions on a pretty regular basis. And then, of course, after Trump won, it became much more difficult. And then further, once he decided to keep the hotel and continue owning it, it became even more difficult. So it suddenly became very hard to figure out, you know, which groups are booking business here? Who's staying overnight there? Who's spending money there? 
you know, there's been periodically a story where somebody gets, you know, some reporter gets a hold of an invitation and finds out that there was a group staying there or, uh, you know, somebody figured out that an embassy was holding a big event there and there'd be a one day story. And those are great, but there's no log. There's no public record of who's spending money there and who's who's staying there. So we decided we were going to try to do something more comprehensive. And I basically just tried to I basically talk to colleagues here into doing a night for me. We go down there for a couple hours. Um, we had some idea about what we were looking for when we went down there. But this wasn't a comprehensive, you know, this isn't like a, a, a database of what is happening at the hotel. We don't know everything. We just have a better idea than I think anyone's had before this. Sure. So you sort of hung out there for about 30 days. And, and tell us what you observed about the scene there. What kind of patrons did you see coming in and out? What kind of people is the Trump International attracting? And, and, and which of those patrons should perhaps give us some pause? Yeah, I, I kind of think of the crowd there in, in sort of three different buckets. The first is people who are are there because they're they're involved in Republican politics in some way, or they want to maybe curry some favor with the administration. So you will see, you know, there are Republican congressmen holding fundraisers there. There are groups that are lobbying Congress or lobbying the administration who will sometimes have an administration official or else somebody that's sort of in Trump's inner circle be a part of their meeting. So for instance, one day when we were in the lobby, uh, there was a meeting of the it's a political group associated with funeral directors who have a policy, you know, just like every group, they have some interest in in Washington politics and their keynote speaker is Newt Gingrich. So in strolls Newt Gingrich walking through the lobby and to give his speech at this funeral director's um, meeting. And that sort of thing happens all the time. Uh, the second group I would say are people who, you know, protesters. They are using Trump's hotel as a target. Sometimes they want to disrupt the operations of the hotel. Sometimes they want to embarrass the president. Um, this is everything from environmentalists, uh, women's groups, family groups, uh, and others, and just sort of generally more liberal causes who are trying to disrupt things there. And then the last group is, it's kind of fans. You know, it's tourists. Uh, it's people who have heard about the hotel maybe in a political atmosphere, but maybe not in a political atmosphere. And they just know that it's this brand new hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. And, you know, it's still a public building. It's leased to the Trump organization, but it's still a public building. And the National Park Service still runs tours up to the clock tower, the famous clock tower, of the old post office. So there's people in fanny packs and, you know, make America great again hats from all over the country. They were showing up at the same time that members of the cabinet are living there. So it's an incredible mix of inside Washington and, uh, you know, just everyday Americans. So, so let's talk about these GOP affiliated patrons and, and officials who may or may not be buying influence. What, what kind of GOP safe spaces existed in D.C. before the Trump International Hotel? Where were they going then? And how are they using the hotel now to maybe rub elbows with power? Oh, sure. I mean, every time in Washington, when we have a change of administration, you kind of feel the social scenes switch switch a little bit. Um, you know, historically, obviously, when there's a Democrat in the White House, everyone used to hang out in Georgetown. He's like the liberal, you know, Democrat haven. You know, there's always like stories about the housing market when a new administration comes in. Are there more people buying houses in Virginia when the Republicans come in? Are there more people buying houses in, you know, I don't know, Georgetown, Bethesda or Tacoma Park, even when a Democrat comes in? So there's always been places where you could sort of, you know, feel like you are among the sort of political set that you are in agreement with. There's never been anything remotely like this where it's so specifically and closely congregated in one very public area. And on top of that, of course, all the money that those people are spending at the hotel 
is going in the president's pocket. I mean, he he still effectively owns the hotel, and I have absolutely no doubt that there are groups that are spending money there in order to curry some favor with him. Right. So, I mean, it seems like there's some at least semi-official government business being transacted there. Do we know how much taxpayer money is flowing through and how much of it is ending up in the coffers of the Trump organization? I think we're really at the beginning in terms of how much taxpayer money is going there. So we've had a little bit of reporting from various papers around the country. The Portland newspaper in, in Maine figured out that through a public records request that the governor of Maine had spent a couple thousand dollars there on a visit. You know, so there's, there's going to be some – there will be questions from various states about whether governors are spending time there when they come to Washington. There's going to be questions about – you know, ultimately, whether federal agencies, when they have people come back to Washington, say you are, I don't know, Department of Agriculture, and you have somebody in the Colorado office coming to Washington for a meeting, if those people, if government employees are spending any time at the Trump Hotel, you know, it's first of all, it's just such a nice and expensive hotel. It's probably not the place you would get a very good government rate at. But secondly, that would just raise, I think, a, another layer of questions because the president is obviously running the government and he's benefiting financially from the hotel. So I would hope everybody would be watching for that also. Are we seeing various groups feel actual pressure to patronize the hotel? Well, we haven't seen a lot of, you know, people or groups kind of come out and say that. You know, very early on, a colleague and I, uh, Mary Jordan here at The Post, we wrote a story about the vibe among embassies and diplomats once Trump was first elected about their perspective was sort of, we're going to have to go there. You know, the president has a hotel. It's brand new. It's right on Pennsylvania Avenue. We're trying to, you know, have good relations with his administration. We're going to have to stay at his hotel and not a competitor's. Now, that I think that really opened people's eyes to the fact that this the the property was an immediate uh, an immediate concern, and this is an immediate question about whether people were feeling pressure to go there. We haven't seen you know administration officials or no one's told us that administration officials are pressuring them to go there, uh, or that the Trump family is pressuring them to go there. That doesn't mean it's not happening, but I think the right now it's legitimate to ask just this atmosphere. Does that make people feel like they? should be going there. So, I mean, take the Romanian president. He's going to meet with the president the next, the tr- President Trump the next day. Does it help him when he goes into the meeting with President Trump to say, hey, I, you know, I was at your hotel yesterday. Love the, you know, love the decor, love my croissant, whatever. You know, I don't, he may have even stayed overnight there. We can't get an answer on that. So I, I just, I could imagine, I can't imagine there's not an incentive for people who want to do business with the administration, the administration to do business at the hotel. So tell us the mechanism by which the president is making money off this. He's he's put the Trump mm-hmm. organization nominally in the hands of his adult sons, but is he ultimately profiting from using his office to market the hotel? Well, that's a good question. I mean, so the, the, the revenue from the hotel goes into a trust that ultimately the president has access to. The federal government has said that he gets to keep his deal, his lease for that hotel, because he doesn't, he's not profiting from the hotel right now. But it's, it's one of those arguments where, you know, if somebody's putting in my bank account, money in my bank account that I'm not taking out right now, does that really make the money any less mine? I think most Americans would say that's still my money. And I think they would say it's still his money. So to the degree that the president is marketing the hotel or administration officials are marketing the hotel by going there. When the president goes there for dinner and waves to the crowd on a Saturday night, there's some expectation among everyone else who may go to the hotel on a Saturday night that, hey, if I go to the Trump Hotel for dinner on Saturday night, we might actually see the president. And that's not like a fanciful thing either. If you go to the Trump Hotel on Saturday night when the president is in town, you may very well see the president. We thought we might see him when we were down there. We saw the president's son. We saw other people. We saw members of his cabinet. We didn't actually see the president. But that is the sort of thing that is just so unique and unprecedented here. And I really think we're at the beginning of figuring out how much is happening there. 
can we connect any dots yet to where an organization or an individual has uh, patronized the hotel and then we've seen some kind of Trump administration policy um, that benefits that person or organization? You have to make a little bit of a stretch here and there, but it's not always that long of a stretch. So for instance, we you saw in our story and another story is that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has spent over $250,000 at the hotel. At the same time, if you look at uh, the administration's relationships with relations with Saudi Arabia, you know, the president, this, I think that was one of the first countries, if not the first country he visited, those relations are very strong right now. And Saudi Arabia is ha- very happy with the way that the administration is acting toward um, the kingdom. Is there a relationship between what the kingdom is spent at the hotel and the relations between the administration and Saudi Arabia? That probably is undetermined, but there's a lot of different relationships like that that are going to be put under microscope. So you you mentioned that uh, the ruling that because Trump is not profiting right this moment from the hotel, he's allowed to still hold the lease. You know, we hear about these legal objections to the current arrangement with the hotel where the, the lease wasn't meant to be given to anyone who serves in government. Um, we hear also about the emoluments clause, which bans the yep. president from receiving any gifts from foreign sovereigns. Do any of these legal objections have teeth? Or are any of them going to go anywhere? That's hard to tell. You. I mean, so there's a number of different legal uh, angles that are in the courts right now. There's a couple, there's a few different cases. On the emolument side, it's never been tested in the courts. I mean, no one can legitimately say they have any idea where any of these cases are going to go. But a lot of people are trying, and they're trying on a couple different angles. Um, some of some state attorneys general have filed suit saying that they have been um, damaged by the hotel operating the way it does. There is a restaurant owner in Washington on 14th Street, Cork Wine and Bar, that has filed suit along with some other restaurants saying that they are unfairly put out of business or losing business because of the business that the hotel that the president is doing at his hotel. To your point about the lease itself, there is a clause in the lease that says, you know, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly right here, but in effect that no elected official should be benefiting from the lease deal. Now, again, I've had four or five different contracting uh, attorneys and officials look at that, and you do get an array of different opinions. Some people say, my goodness, how could they allow this lease to go on? This is clearly a violation. The GSA, which is the agency overseeing the hotel, should immediately have terminated it. And you see other people on the other end of the spectrum say, yeah, that's boilerplate language. It's in, a, it's in a ton of different leases. Even if the GSA or the government was concerned about it, terminating the entire lease is probably not the answer they would have in any situation. They should they would probably contact the owners, as the GSA eventually did, and see if they could figure out if there was a problem or not. But to this point, the GSA, you know, the GSA had a window there while Obama was still president to do something about that and to make uh, make an issue out of that clause. And they didn't. They looked at it. Their attorneys looked at it, and they decided to take a pass. And now the GSA under the Trump administration will be changing, right? And, and have you been able to speak to them, or have people been able to get clarity from them on this issue? The GSA, I mean, a lot of agencies under the Trump administration so far have kind of clamped down on the information that they provide. You will see you know, members of Congress on the Democratic side who are just up in arms about not being able to get information out of the agencies. And that is absolutely true with the GSA. There's a lot of agencies that are under a microscope right now, but GSA is really kind of the top of the list. The administration still has not nominated somebody to run the agency. So we have an acting temporary, you know, career government employee who's running it. Every time a GSA official is in front of Congress for any reason, budget, uh, other real estate issues, other technical issues, whatever, the hotel becomes an issue and Democrats sort of line up to inquire about how they could let this hotel remain in business. 
It's and, and, and you know what? As long as the president continues to own it, he, it's just not going to go away. I don't think anybody really knows which of these kind of attacks on this arrangement are, is going to be the one ultimately that might win out. But there's so many of them. It's hard for you to imagine that none of them will cause an issue for him. I've been speaking with Jonathan O'Connell, a reporter at The Washington Post. Keep checking in on his work over at The Washington Post and follow him on Twitter while you're at it, at O'Connell Post Biz. Jonathan, thanks for joining me on Trumpcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's the show for today. But before we take off, I have to give you a recommendation. Are you listening to Slate's daily news show, The Gist, with Mike Pesca? Mike's one of the smartest, sharpest commentators out there. He had a great show with This American Life's Zoe Chase last week, where she aired tapes of her old interviews with Anthony Scaramucci for the first time. It got real moochy up there. Check out The Gist at slate.com slash The Gist. And while you're following things, follow us on Twitter, at RealTrumpCast. That's at RealTrumpCast. It's the best way to keep up with what's going on around the show, including our upcoming live podcast in Austin, Texas, for the Texas Tribune Festival. You can get more info on that at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon. Happy birthday to Trumpcast co-host Virginia Heffernan. Happy birthday! And I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Virginia Heffernan, I want to wish you a happy birthday. These are Trump birthday wishes. I know birthdays. Nobody sends birthday wishes like me. I send the best birthday wishes. Gold-plated birthday wishes.